Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody comes back, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked drawer today, didn't you? How do the dead come back? Madame Crowell's ghost. Sheridan Lefanu. I'm an old woman now, and I was but thirteen my last birthday the night I came to Applewell House. My aunt was the housekeeper there, and the sort of one-horse carriage was down at Lexhoe waiting to take me and my box up to Applewell. I was a bit frightened by the time I got to Lexhoe, and when I saw the carriage and horse, I wished myself back again with my mother at Hazelden. I was crying when I got into the Shea, that's what we used to call it, an old John Mulberry that drove it, and was a good-natured fellow. Bought me a handful of apples at the Golden Lion to cheer me up a bit, and he told me that there was a currant cake and tea and pork chops waiting for me, all hot, in my aunt's room in the great house. It was a fine moonlight night, and I ate the apples, looking out of the Shea window. It's a shame for gentlemen to frighten a poor foolish child like I was. I sometimes think it might be tricks. There was two of them on the tap of the coach beside me, and they began to question me after nightfall when the moon rose where I was going to. Well, I told him it was to wait on Dame Arabella Crowell of Applewell House, near by Lexo. Oh, then, says one of them, you'll not be long there. And I looked at him as much as to say, why not, for I had spoken out when I told them where I was going, as if it was something clever I had to say. Because, says he, and don't you for the life tell no one, only watch her and see. She's possessed by the devil, a mon heifer ghost. Have you got a Bible? Yes, sir, says I, for my mother put my little Bible in my box, and I knew it was there. And by the same token, though the print's too small for me old eyes, I have it in my press to this hour. As I looked up at him, saying, Yes, sir, I thought I saw him winking at his friend, but I couldn't be sure. Well, says he, be sure you put it under your bolster every night. It'll keep the old girl's claws off you. And I got such a fright when he said that, he wouldn't fancy. And I'd like to ask him a lot about the old lady, but I was too shy. And he and his friend began talking together about their own concerns, and dowly enough I got down, as I told you, at Lexo. My heart sank as I drove into the dark avenue. The trees stand very thick and big as old as the old house almost, and four people with their arms out and their fingers touching barely goads round some of them. Well, my neck was stretched out to the winds, looking for the first view of the great house, and all at once we pulled up in front of it. A great white and black house it is, with great black beams across and right up to it, and gables looking out as white as a sheet to the moon and the shadows of the trees, two or three up and down in front, you could count the leaves on them, and all the little diamond-shaped window panes glimmering on the great hall window, and great shutters in the old fashion, hinged on the wall outside, bolted across the rest of the windows in front, for there was but three or four servants, and the old lady in the house, and mastered rooms was locked up, my heart was in my mouth when I said the journey was over, and this the great house afore me. And I saw an Amy aunt that I never see till now, and damn Crowell that I was come to wait upon, and was afeard on already. My aunt kissed me in the hall and brought me to her room. She was tall and thin with a pale face and black eyes and long thin hands with black mittens on. She was past fifty, and her word was short but her word was law. I have no complaints to make of her, but she was a hard woman, and I think she would have been kinder to me if I had been a sister's child in place of a brother's. But all that's any consequence, no. The squire, his name was Mr. Chevenix Crowell. He was Dame Crowell's grandson, come down there by way of saying that the old lady was well treated about twice or thrice in a year. I seed him but twice all the time I was at Applewell House. I can't say but she was well taken care of, notwithstanding, but that was because my aunt and Meg Wyvern, that was a maid, had a conscience and did their duty by her. Mrs. Wyvern, Meg Wyvern, my aunt, called her to herself, 
and Mrs. Wyvern to me, was a fat, jolly lass of fifty, a good height and a good breadth, always good-humoured, and walked slow. She had fine wages, but she was a bit stingy, and kept all her fine claws under lock and key, and wore mostly a twilled chocolate cotton with red and yellow and green sprigs and bars on it, and it lasted wonderful. She never give me out, not the valley or a brass thimble or time I was there, but she was good-humoured and always laughing, and she talked no end of prose over her tea, and seeing me sa sackless and dowly, she rose me up with her laughing and her stories, and I think I liked her better than me aunt. Children is so taken with a bit of fun or a story, though me aunt was very good to me, but a hard woman about some things, and silent always. My aunt took me into her bedchamber that I might rest myself a bit while she was setting the tea in her room. But first she patted me on the shoulder and said I was a tall lass of my years and had spired up wheel and asked me if I could do plain work and stitching and she looked in my face and said I was like my father, her brother that was dead and gone and she hoped I was a better Christian and would ne'er do all that lids. It was hard saying the first time I set foot in a room, I thought. When I went into the next room, the housekeeper's room, very comfortable, yak or round, there was a fine fire blazing away with coal and peat and wood, all in a low together, and tea on the table and hot cake and smoke and meat. And there was Mrs. Wyvern, fat, jolly and talking away, more in an hour than my aunt would in a year. While I was still at my tea, my aunt went upstairs to see Madame Crowell. She's gone up to see that old Judith Squales is awake, said Mrs. Wyvern. Judith sits with Madame Crowell when me and Mrs. Shutters, that was my aunt's name, is away. She's a troublesome old lady. You'll have to be sharp with her, or she'll be into fire out at window. She goes on wires, she does, old though she be. How old, ma'am, says I. Ninety-three her last birthday, and that's eight months gone, says she, and she laughed. And don't be asking questions about her before your aunt mind. I tell you, just take her as you find her, and that's all. And what's to be my business about her, please, ma'am, says I. About the old lady, well, says she, your aunt, Mrs. Shutters, will tell you that. But I suppose you'll have to sit in the room with your work and see she's at no mischief and let her amuse herself with her things on the table, and get her a food and drink, as she calls for it, and keep her out of mischief, and ring the bell hard if she's troublesome. Is she deaf, ma'am? Nay, nor blin, says she, as sharp as a needle. But she's gone quite alpy, and can't remember not rightly, and Jack the Giant Killer, or Goody Two-Shoes, will please her as weel as the King's Court, or the affairs of the nation. And what did the little girl go away for, ma'am, that went on Friday last? My aunt wrote to me mother she was to go. Yes, she's gone. What for, says I again? She didn't answer, Mrs. Shutters, I do suppose, says she. I don't know. Don't be talking. Your aunt can't abide a talking child. And please, ma'am, is the old lady well in health, says I. It ain't no harm to ask that, says she. She's tawfling a bit lately, but better this week past, and I dare say she'll last out a hundred years yet. Wished, here's your aunt coming down the passage. In comes me aunt and begins talking to Mrs. Wyvern, and I, beginning to feel more comfortable and at home-like, was walking about the room, looking at this thing and that. There was pretty old china things on a cupboard, and pictures again on the wall, there was a doer up on it, wainscot, and I sees a queer old leathern jacket with straps and buckles to it, and sleeves as lang as the bedpost hanging up inside. What's that you're at, child? says my aunt, sharp enough, turning about when I thought she least minded. What's that in your hand? This, ma'am, says I, turning about with the leathern jacket. I don't know what it is, ma'am. Pale as she was, the red came up on her cheeks and her eyes flashed with anger, and I think only she had half a dozen steps to take between her and me, she'd have given me a sesop. But she did give me a shake by the shoulder, and she plucked the thing out of me hand and says she, 
while ever you stay here, don't ye meddle with nought that don't belong to ye. And she hung it up upon the pin that was there, and shut the door with a bang, and locked it fast. Mrs. Wiven was lifting up her hands and laughing all this time, quietly in her chair, rolling herself a bit in it, as she used to do when she was kinking. The tears was in my eyes, and she winked at my aunt, and says she, drying her own tears, was wet with the laughing, Tut, the child met me harm. Come here to me, child. It's only a pair of crutches for lame ducks. And ask us nay question mind, and we'll tell you nay lies. And come here and sit down and drink a mug of beer before you go to your bed. My room, mind ye, was upstairs next to the old ladies, and Mrs. Wiven's bed was near hers in her room, and I was to be ready at call if need should be. The old lady was in one of her tantrums that night and part of the day before. She used to take fits of the sulks. Sometimes she wouldn't let them dress her, and at other times she would not let them tack her clothes off. She was a great beauty, they said in her day, but there was no one about Applewell that remembered her in her prime. And she was dreadful fond of dress, and had thick silks and stiff satins and velvets and laces and all sorts enough to set up seven shops at the least. All her dresses was old-fashioned and queer, but worth a fortune. Well, I went to me bed. I lay for a while awake, for all things was new to me, and I think the tea was in me nerves too, for I wasn't used to it, except now and then on a holiday like. And I heard Mrs. Wiven talking, and I listened with me hand to me ear, but I could not hear Mrs. Crowell, and I don't think she said a word. There was great care took of her. The people at Applewell knew that when she died they would every one get the sack and the situations was well paid and easy. The doctor come twice a week to see the old lady and you may be sure they all did as he bid them. One thing was the same every time. They were never to cross or frump her anywhere but to humour and please her in everything. So she lay in a class all that night. The next day, not a word she said, and I was at me needlework all that day in me own room, except when I went down to me dinner. I would have liked to see the old lady and even to hear her speak, but she might as well been in London or time for me. When I had me dinner, me aunt sent me out for a walk for an hour. I was glad when I came back. The trees were sea big and the place was so dark and lonesome. It was a cloudy day, and I cried a great deal thinking of home while I was walking alone there. That evening, the candles being alight, I was sitting in my room, and the door was open into Madame Crowell's chamber where my aunt was. It was then, for the first time, I heard what I suppose was the old lady talking. It was a queer noise, like. I couldn't well say which, a bird or a beast, only it had a bleating sound in it, and was very small. I pricked my ears to hear all I could, but I couldn't mack out one word she said, and my aunt answered, The evil one can't hear no one, ma'am, but the Lord permits. Then the same queer voice from the bed says something more that I couldn't make head and tail on. And my aunt made answer again, let them pull faces, ma'am, and say what they will if the Lord be for us, who can be against us. I kept listening, with my ear turned to the door, holding my breath, but not another word or sound came in from the room. In about twenty minutes, as I was sitting by the table, looking at the pictures in the old Aesop's fables, I was aware of something moving at the door. And looking up, I seed me aunt's face looking in at the door, and her hand raised. Whisht, you see, very soft, and comes over to me on tiptoe, and she says in a whisper, Thank God she's asleep at last, and don't you make no noise till I come back, for I'm going down to take me cup of tea, and my back in now, me and Mrs. Wiven, and she'll be sleeping in the room, and you can run down when we come up and Judith will give you your supper in my room. And with that, she goes. I kept looking at the picture book as before, listening every now and then, but there was no sound, 
nor a breath that I could hear, and I began whispering to the pictures and talking to myself to keep my heart up, for I was grown feared in that big room. And at last up I got, and began walking about the room, looking at this and peeping at that, to amuse me mind, you'll understand. And at last, what should I do but peeps into Madame Crowell's bedchamber? A grand chamber it was, with a great fower poster with fluid silk curtains as tall as the ceiling and folding down to the floor, and drawn close all around. There was a looking-glass, the biggest I ever seed before, and the room was a blaze of light. I counted twenty-two wax candles all eight. Such was her fancy, and no one dared say her nay. I listened at the door and gaped and wondered all around. When I heard there was not a breath, and did not see so much as a stir in the curtains, I took heart and walked into the room on tiptoe, and looked around again. Then I takes a cake at me cell in the big glass, and at last it come into me heed. Why couldn't I ha' cake at the old lady her cell in the bed? You'd think me a fool if you knew half how I longed to see Dame Crowl, and I thought to me cell if I didn't peep now, I might wait many a day before I got so good a chance again. Well, my dear, I come to the side of the bed, the curtains being closed, and my heart almost failed me, but I took courage, and I slips my finger in between the thick curtains, and then my hand, so I waits a bit, but all was as still as death, so softly, softly, I draws the curtain, and there, sure enough, a seed before me stretched out like the painted lady on the tombstone in Lexhoe Church, the famous Dame Crowl of Applewell House. There she was, dressed out. You never seed the like in their days, satin and silk and scarlet and green and gold and pint lace by Jen. Twas a seat. A big poodered wig, half as high as her cell, was atop of her head, and wow, was ever such wrinkles, and her old baggy throat all poodered white, and her cheeks rouged, and most skin eyebrows that Mrs. Wyvern used to stick on, and there she lay, prude and stark, with a pair of clocked silk hose on and heels to her shoon as tall as nine pins. Lauk! But her nose was crooked and thin, and half the whites of her eyes was open. She used to stand dressed as she was, giggling and dribbling before the looking-glass, with a fan in her hand and a big nosegay in her bodice. Her wrinkled little hands were stretched down by her sides, and such long nails all cut into points I never seed in me days. Could it even have been the fashion for great folk to wear their fingernails so? Well, I think you'd have been frightened yourself if you'd seed such a sight. I couldn't let go of the curtain, nor move an inch, nor take me eyes off her. My very heart stood still, and in an instant... She opens her eyes, and up she sits, and spins herself round, and down wear, with a clack on her two tall heels on the floor, facing me, ogling in me face with her two great glassy eyes, and a wicked simper with her wrinkled lips and lang false teeth. Well, a corpse is a natural thing, but this was the dreadfulest sight I ever seed. She had her fingers straight out pointing at me, and her back was crooked, ruined again with age. Says she, Ye little limb, what for did ye say I killed the boy? I'll tickle ye till you're stiff. And if I'd thought an instant, I'd have turned about and ran, but I couldn't take my eyes off her 
and I backed from her as soon as I could, and she come clattering after like a thing on wires, with her fingers pointing to me throat, and she making her time assumed with her tongue like ziz, ziz, ziz. I kept backing and backing as quick as I could, and her fingers was only a few inches away from my throat, and I felt I'd lose me wits if she touched me. I went back this way, right into the corner, and I give a yellick. Did I think soul and body was parting, and that minute me aunt, from the door, calls out with a blare, and the old lady turns round on her, and I turns about and ran through me room, and don't stares as hard as me legs would carry me. I cried hearty, I can tell you, when I got down to the housekeeper's room. Mrs. Wyvern laughed a deal when I telt her what had happened, but she changed a key when she heard the old lady's words. Say them again, says she. So I tell her, Ye little limb, for what did ye say I killed the boy? I'll tickle ye till ye're stiff. And did she say she killed the boy, says she. Not I, ma'am, says I. Judith was always up with me after that, when the two elder women was aware from her. I would have jumped out the window rather than stay alone in the same room with her. It was about a week after, as well as I can remember, Mrs. Wyvern, yard day when me and her was alone, telt me a thing about Madame Kroll that I didn't know before. She, being young and a great beauty, full seventy year before, had married Squire Kroll of Applewell. But he was a widower, and had a son about nine years old. There never was tale in the tidings of this boy after one morning. No one could say where he went to. He was allowed too much liberty, and used to be off in the morning, one day to the keeper's cottage, and breakfast with him, and away to the warren, and not home mayhap till evening, and another time down to the lake and bathe there, and spend the day fishing there, or paddling about in the boat. Well, no one could say what was gone with him, only this, that his hat was found by the lake, under the hawthorn that grows there to this day, and t'was thought he was drowned bathing. And the squire's son, by his second marriage, with this Madame Crowl that lived, say, dreadful lang, came in for the estates. It was his son, the old lady's grandson, Squire Chevenick's Crowl, that owned the estates at the time I come to Applewell. There was a deal of talk long before my aunt's time about it, and was said the stepmother knew mare than she was leg to let out, and she managed her husband, the old squire, with her white heft and flatteries. And as the boy was never seen mare, in course of time the thing died out of folks' minds. I'm going to tell you now about what I seed, with my own een. I was not there six months, and it was winter time, when the old lady took her last sickness. The doctor was afeard she might have took a fit of madness, as she did fifteen year before, and was buckled up many a time in a straight waistcoat, which was the very leathern jacket I seed in the closet of my aunt's room. Well, she didn't. She pined and winded, and went aft. Tawfling, tawfling, quiet enough, till a day or two before her flitting, then she took to rabbling, and sometimes skirling in the bed. You'd think a robber had a knife to her throat, and she used to work out of the bed, and not being strong enough then to walk or stand, she'd fall onto the floor with her old wizened hands stretched before her face, and skirling still for mercy. You may guess. I didn't go into the room, and I used to be shivering in my bed with fear at a skirling and scraffling on the floor, and blaring out words that'd make your skin turn blue. My aunt and Mrs. Wyvern, and Judith Squales and the woman from Lexor, was always about her. At last she took fits, and the war out. Sir was there, and prayed for her, but she was past praying with, I suppose, it was right but none could think there was much good in it, and so lang at last she made a flitting, and I was of her, 
and old Dame Crow was shrouded and coffined, and Squire Chevenix was wrought for. But he was away in France, and the delay was so long that Sir and Doctor both agreed it would not do to keep her langer out of her place, and no one cared but just them two, and me aunt and the rest of us from Applewell to go to the burying. So the old lady of Applewell was laid in the vault under Lexhoe Church, and we lived up at the great house till such a time as the squire should come to tell his will about us, and pay off such as he chose to discharge. I was put into another room, two doors away from what was Dame Crowell's chamber after her death, and this thing happened the night before Squire Chevenix came to Applewell. The room I was in now was a large square chamber, covered with yak panels, but unfurnished except for my bed, which had knee curtains to it, and a chair, and a chapel or so, that looked nothing at all in such a big room, and the big looking-glass that the old lady used to cake into, and admire herself from head to heel, now that there was nay mare of that work, was put out of the way, and stood against the wall in my room, for there was shift in the many things in the chamber, you may suppose, when she come to be coffin. The news had come that day that the squire was to be down next morning at Applewell, and not sorry was I, for a thought I was sure to be sent ham again to me mother, and right glad was I, and I was thinking of all at him, and my sister Janet, and the kitten, and the pie mag, and trimmer the tyke, and aught rest, and I got sea fidgety I couldn't sleep, and the clock struck twelve, and me wide awake and the room as dark as pick. My back was turned to the door, and my eyes toward the wall opposite. Well, it couldn't be a full quarter past twelve when I sees a lighting on the wall before me, as if something took fire be hint, and the shadows of the bed and the chair and my gown that was hanging from the wall was dancing up and down on the ceiling beams and the yak panels, and I turns me heed how I me show the quick, thinking something must have gone afire. And what should I see by Jen but the likeness of the old beldam, bedizened out in her satins and velvets, on her deed body simpering, with her eyes as wide as saucers, and her fias like the fiend hisself. T'was a red light that rose about her in a fuff and low, as if her dress round her feet was blazing. She was driving on right for me with her old shrivel hands crooked as if she was gonna claw me. I couldn't stir, but she passed me straight by with a blast of cold air, and I seed her, at the war, in the alcove, as me aunt used to call it, which was a recess where the state bed used to stand in old times, with a door wide open, and her hands groping in at summit was there. I never seen that door before, and she turned round to me like a thing on a pivot, flyering, and all at once the room was dark, and I standing at the far side of the bed. I don't know how I got there, and I found me tongue at last, and if I didn't a blare a yellick or rennin down the gallery, and almost pulled Mrs. Wiven's door off hooks, and frightened her half out of her wits. You may guess I didn't a sleep that night, and with first light down with me to me aunt, as fast as me two legs could carry me. Well, me aunt didn't a frump nor flight me as I thought she would, but she held me by the hand, and looked hard in me face all time, and she telt me not to be feared, and says she, had the appearance a key in its hand. Yes, says I, bringing it to mind, a big key in a queer brass handle. Stop a bit, says she, letting go of me hand and open and cupboard doer. Was it like this, says she, 
taking the out in her fingers and showing it to me with a dark look in my face. That was it, says I, quick enough. Are you sure? she says, turning it round. Sat, says I. I felt like I was going to faint when I seed it. Well, that'll do, child, says she, softly thinking, and she locked it up again. The squire hisself will be here today before twelve o'clock, and you must tell him all about it, says she, thinking, and I suppose I'll be leaving soon, and so the best thing for the present is that you should go yam this afternoon, and I'll look out another place for you when I can. Fain was I, you may guess, at that word. Me aunt packed up me things for me, and the three pounds that I was due to me to bring yam, and Squire Crowell hisself came down to Applethwaite that day, a handsome man, about thirty years old. It was the second time I seed him, but this was the first time he spoke to me. My aunt talked to him in the housekeeper's room, and I don't know what they said. I was a bit of fear on the squire, he being a Greek gentleman down in Lexor, and I darn't go near till I was called, and says he, smiling, What's all this we ye sent, child? It mun be a dream, for you know there's nae sick a thing as a boo or a freight in our world. But whatever it was, my little maid, sit ye down, and tell us all about it, from first to last. Weel, so soon as I made an end, he thought a bit, and says he to me aunt, I mind the place weel. In our old Sir Oliver's time, lame Windle telt me there was a door in that recess to the left, where the lassie dreamed she saw me grandmother up in it. It was past eighty when he telt me that, and I but a boy. It's twenty years, sin. The plate and jewels used to be kept there long ago, before the iron closet was made in the arras chamber, and he telt me the key had a brass handle, and this, ye say, was found in the bottom of the kist where she kept her old fans. No, would not it be a queer thing if we found some spoons or diamonds forget there? You must come up with us, lassie, and point to the very spot. Loath was I, and me heart in me mouth, and fast I held by me aunt's hand as I stepped into that awesome room and showed them beath who she come and passed me by and the spot where she stood, and where the doer seemed to open. There was an old empty press against the wall then, and shoving it aside, sure enough, there was the tracing of a doer in the wainscot, and a keyhole stopped with wood, and planed across as smooth as the rest, and the joining of the doer all stopped with putty the colour a yak but for the hinges that showed a bit where the press was shoved aside, ye would not consent there was a do there at all. Ha! says he with a queer smile. This looks like it. It took some minutes with a small chisel and hammer to pick the bit of wood out of the keyhole. The key fitted, sure enough, and with a strong twist and a lang screek, the bout went back and he pulled door open. There was another door inside, stranger than the fust, but the lax was gone, and it opened easy. Inside was a narrow floor, and walls and vaulted brick. We could not see what was in it, for twas dark as pick. When me aunt had leated candle, the squire held it up and stepped in. Me aunt stood on tiptoe, trying to look over his shoulder, and I didn't say nout. Ha ha! says the squire, stepping backward. What's that? Give me the poker, quick, says he to me aunt. And as she went to the hearth, I peeps beside his arm, and I seed, squat down in the far corner, a monkey, or a flame on the chest, or else the most shriveled up, wizened old wife that ever was seen on the earth. By Jen! says me aunt, was putting poker in his hand. She caked by his shoulder, and see the ill-favoured thing. I care, sir, what you're doing. Back with ye, and shut to the door. But in place of that, he steps in softly with the poker pointed like a sword, and he gives it a poke, 
and doon it tumbles together, heed and o' in a heap of bians and dust, little mare than a hatful. Twas bians of a child. All the rest went to dust at a touch. They said nowt for a while, but he torns root skull as it lay on the floor. Young as I was, I concerted I knew well enough what they was thinking on. A deed cat, says he, pushing back and blowing out candle, and shouldn't do her. We'll come back, you and me, Mrs. Shutters, and look on the shelves by and by. I've other matters for us to speak to you about, and this little girl's gone ham, you say. She has her wages. And I must mak her a present, says he, patting me shoulder with his hand. And he did give me a good pound, and I went after Lexo about an hour after, and saw Yam bit stagecoach, and fain was I to be at Yam again, and I never see Dame Crowl Applewell, God be thanked, either in appearance or in dream after. But when I was grown to be a woman, me aunt spent a day with me at Littleham, and she telt me there was nae doot it was poor lald boy that was missin' Sir Langson, that was shut up to die there in dark by that wicked beldam, where his skulls or his prayers or his thumpin' couldn't be heard, and his hat was left by water's edge, whoever did it, to mak belief he was drowned. The claws at the fust touch a ran into snuffer dust in the cell where the bians was fun. But there was a handful of jet buttons and a knife with a green heft, together with a couple of pennies the poor old fella had in his pocket, I suppose, when he was decoyed in there and seed his last at late. And there was among the squire's papers a copy of the notice that was printed after he was lost when the old squire thought he might have run away or been took bit gypsies. And it said, he had a green hefted knife with him, and that his buttons were cut a jet. Sir, that is all I have to say concerning our damn crowl, Applewell House. Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody Some come back. Don't they? Isn't that Everybody so? Come back. You tried to get into the locked drawer today, didn't you? So that was uh, Madame Crowell's Ghost by Sheridan Lefanu. Now, if you don't know anything about Joseph Thomas Sheridan Lefanu, um, it, suffi- it suffices to say that he was the premier writer of gothic and horror fiction of his generation, as M.I. James may be considered in his generation, but Sheridan Lefanu was the one before. So he um, was born 1814, died in 1873, so he didn't die old. M.I. James thought he was absolutely the first rank of a writer of ghost stories. I've done a couple of Sheridan Lafani stories, such as Green Tea and Carmilla before, and um, I think others as well, actually. One loses track. Um, so he um, was of, as you guess with the name Lafanu, was of Huguenot uh, descent. So you know the Huguenots were the French Protestants who were persecuted in Catholic France and had to leave, and they came in numbers to um, England, but also clearly to Ireland as well. And, of course, he had Irish uh, and English um, uh, ancestry as well. So uh, his family were members or, or clergymen of the Church of Ireland, the Protestant minority church in Ireland, and um, they subsisted on the money from the tithes of the Church of Ireland. So the big problem with the Church of Ireland was it claimed 10% of the tithes of the population of Ireland, but most of the population of Ireland wasn't didn't belong to that church, so there was a great deal of feeling of unfairness there, and they refused to, in, in a wider uh, context of unfairness, of, uh, we might call it these days, colonialism, might we? Um, and so um, that's what happened, and so so their income was a bit dodgy. He um, became involved in the theatre. His wife died when he was 48, and he was very grief-stricken and felt gu- guilty. She had a hysterical attack and died, and he was left with the young kids, the young children and brought them up and he didn't write any fiction for a long time. But in the end, of course, he was involved, he gave Bram Stoker a job and Bram Stoker's of the next generation. And and you, we can see in his masterpiece, I think, Carmilla, um, which is a vampire story, we can see the influence on 
Bram Stoker later on. So I think you know uh, Lafano was is is the is the premier writer of this kind of story that we like in his generation. And um, you know there we are. So what do we think about? Oh yeah, I've got to say something about the dialect. So the interesting thing is, although Lafano was an Irishman. He set a lot of stories in England but, and wrote in quite convincing dialect of the north of England, the far north of England. And so he must have had, I I've been trying to track down his biographical connections with the north of England. Um, the other one is Laura Silverbell, which is written in kind of Northumberland dialect. Now, to my ear, this is not quite Northumberland, Is and I've done it as a north... As as a Cumberland Northumberland border, so um, I've um, I have a probably more Cumbrian than Northumberland to be fair, but um, some of the words like um, home, ham or um, yam, but the H is dropped a lot in Cumberland, but it's heim in Scots and stuff like that, and of course ham is is the the Norwegian or the Swedish influence as well there. Uh, from the colonization, from the Viking age, I've got apparently two percent Viking blood. It's not very much, is it? But I wasn't. I didn't think I had any. So there we are. So um, yeah. So as a story, in terms of a ghost story, it's not much, is it? Really, it's. Uh, but it's its joy is in the presentation of the story through the eyes of the young servant girl and her observations in such a homely. But um, engaging fashion, I, for me, the story's great because of the presentation of it through the eyes of the young lass in her dialect. And to me, that, that makes it really. The story, I suppose it's a, um, you know, that horrific, what is that about really? This story was published in 1870. Now, We've got Mrs. Havisham from Dickens, which was published uh, nine years earlier. But there is some... They're playing with the horror, I think, potentially, of an older woman refusing to accept her descent into age, you know, and the fact she's still dressing herself up uh, as if she's a younger woman. And there is something to them kind of horrific about that although to me i'm like well you know yeah it isn't a thing really to me you know i don't mind uh who dresses as what but that is probably because i belong to a different generation but i wonder if perhaps that there is some horror of the inappropriateness as they saw it of an old aged wrinkled woman um aspiring to the trappings of a young woman um there we are and I don't know, you know, this is again all, we say this, before, I, I say this every time, you know, you, it's very difficult to discuss anything without, um, it, absolutely anything really, uh, without descending into some territory where someone will be offended. And I don't mean to offend anybody, you should know that by now. Um, but, but, you know, we have to be able to discuss things, really, without people going, oh, no, no, don't say that. You know, we have to be able to talk about these things. And so there is something which, uh, which you know, I acknowledge that um, I don't share, that, but clearly for the generation there's something horrific about this. And what is it? I'm curious about what it is uh, because I don't get it. It's like the, the old thing in medieval times about, oh, I correct me about the dating, about how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. And we think... Yeah, so what? But it was a very, very important and, and live issue to them. William James, the brother of Henry James, the American psychologist, that's William, he talks about this in The Varieties of Religious Experience, which is a tremendous book. I remember finding an old second-hand copy of it and reading it one summer many, many years ago. And he talks about there are certain things that are live, so, for example, we don't care much about Jupiter or Mars. But in their time, the people who were adherents of them would have been very exercised and very um, kind of committed and would have had a lot of... Um, and it was a live issue, is what we were saying. And then things become dead. So the, the how many 
angels can dance on the head of a pin is of no interest to us, but certain things that would have not been of interest to our um, our uh, ancestors are of massive interest to us. So I think in different times and places, this whole furore about... Well, is it? I don't know what it is, but people, like, people send me YouTube or YouTube sends me videos. What is a woman? You know, that is a thing of our age, you know. That, that, and the point I'm saying this, if you've just been riled up by me saying that, then it shows how live it is. But, but the fact I say to you, how many angels dance on you, like, I don't care. And, and I suspect if we flipped it and went back to 1270 and we said to them, what is a woman? They were going, well, it's this. And would have moved on without any investment in the issue because it was not live to them. It was not a live issue. And there are certain things that rise up and we have no idea what it will be. I am half persuaded. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dismiss this in a minute. But, uh, you know, is it something to do with the movement of the planets? Is it to do with... The, the movement of Mercury or um, Uranus or um, Pluto through, you know, these big cultural movements where certain issues become of massive importance and then fade away, then fade away, then fade away. Um, you know, certain things like um, the filioque, you know, the difference between the Eastern Church and the Western Church. I think this happened in 1000 and such like. The Western Church and the Eastern Church got very upset whether, you know, you have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, whether the Holy Spirit present, pre, um, um, precessed from the Father and the Son or just the Father. Now, you're probably sitting going, what, what, so what? But that split Christianity, that single issue. And people would go on the street and... And then, of course, the other thing is, you know, if you support Manchester United or you support Liverpool, and, you know, most of you people listening are like, I don't support either. Isn't. But for the people who do, they will go and fight on the street for it. So there are certain issues which are, which are important and which aren't. And, um, I, and so where this returns us to is the fact that I think in the sort of second half, at least, of the 19th century, this idea of an older woman wearing makeup and um, not not accepting her um, becoming old was in some way, I want to say, abhorrent to them. Whereas now we're we're just bemused by it. It isn't horrific at all. It's just it's just a choice, isn't it? You know, if you you're ninety and you want to make makeup, whether you're a man or a woman. Most people now would be like, yeah, it's up to you, mate. You do what you want. Um, but there we are. Anyway, so for me, the story is um, not, it's not particularly horrific. But it's, the, the, the joy of it is the presentation to the eyes of the young girl, particularly delivered in that dialect. Um, it's not, I did um, Thrawn Janet at one point in Scots, and a lot of people said I, I didn't understand it. I, I wonder how many people would understand that. But I've, I chose to do it in a, in a, in a, probably from, probably somebody from Cumru or Castle Carrick would talk like that, <laughs> but a hundred years ago. But there we are. Anyway, that's fine. So in terms of a, I know I only do this because um, people tell me, otherwise one would feel slightly um, self-conscious about, you know, discussing one's minutiae of life so last week i didn't record anything because i was i went to a a rock festival man but it was a rock festival for really old for oldish people because the bands that were on it was like tanita tikram lindisfarne were on um i particularly wanted to see levelers were fantastic i saw them on a saturday night i loved um you may know what phil campbell and his bastard sons that's the name, it's not me swearing, it was his name of his band. They were great on the Friday. And I went to see Hawkwind, because you may know that I'm a massive Hawkwind fan, and Hawkwind were awesome on the Sunday. But there was 
we went on, it took me two and a half hours to queue to get into the site. And the problem was that the ground, it was very boggy. It was, it has been raining a lot. So it's very damp, the earth. This was in Durham. Now, if you've never been to Durham, this was just outside Durham, in fact. But I walked into Durham on the Saturday morning. Durham is a, is a wonderful historical town with the castle and the cathedral on a, a rocky highland, just in a gorge above the River Weir. And it's a fantastically historical place. And I went to the um, shrine of St Cuthbert and I said to, thanks to St Cuthbert for saving my little doggy. And um, he didn't he didn't say anything back to me, but I like to feel he, he was there. I did feel some kind of presence there. So not a spooky presence, but just a holy presence because you think people have been worshipping St Cuthbert there for a... Well, they don't worship St Cuthbert, we've got to be quite clear, being Christians. But um, they honouring St Cuthbert for, um, you know, 1,200 years or so. 1,200, well, a lot of years, a 1,000 years at least. So there is an air of sanctity to the place. It's a great place. It's a, it's, it's a really interesting town. Anyway, so going back to the Rock Festival, which was at Ushaw House just outside the city. So that it took two and a half hours to queue to get on, and that was due to the fact the ground was so boggy that they were having to tow vehicles on. That was a bad sign. So I, we finally got on, and the guy said to me, right, cross this gravel and just hit and gun it, and don't, don't hit the brake. So here's me going down this hill trying, behind these other people, trying not to break, because I thought, well, if I break, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bog down. And I ended up halfway down the hill, and I thought, oh, this does not bode well. So on the, uh, so I went to see the bands um, putting a tent up, just me there. It, she, it isn't Sheila's thing, really. And uh, Wishbone Ash were playing, they were good as well. Jethro Toll were playing over on Friday, they were very good. Uh, Ian Anderson's, uh, you know, he, he, you know, uh, musicianship was fantastic, but he's lost his voice and poor guy, you know, he's an older fellow now. And I loved Jethro Toll back in the day, uh, but he's lost his voice, you know, and because he had uh, esophageal cancer. So fair enough, you know, but there's no criticism there. But um, the musicianship was great, but I had to d dip out to see Phil Campbell playing Motorhead. Um, hits so okay where were we so i went out and a lad i grew up with sort of what we we in the old days in england you used to didn't go abroad for holidays you had caravans or working class people did and um or not completely you know but you know working class people who could afford a caravan let's say and so we used to go and and i grew up from you know i'm being about eight to 18 going to this particular caravan site and the same people went every year and Richard was one of them and he introduced me to Hawkwind I remember him giving me in 1975 a C90 tape and on one side was Hawkwind Warrior and Edge of Time and on the other was Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon and I used to wear out his batteries listening to it uh, on one of those portable tape players he was a very kind and generous man and he saved my life well he saved me a lot of trouble so going back so here I am first night and I have some noisy neighbours who party till 4am and I'm like, okay, well, you know, that's the first night. Second night, they're going to they're gonna be tired. No, no, no. 3.30. And so um, at that time, somebody called Jason at 3.40am remonstrated with them and, they were, and, he, and I could hear this kind of reasonable voice amongst these drunken carrying on. And they were like, what's your name? What's your name? Jason, Jason. Right, Jason. So what's the problem, Jason? And Jason told him we were um, playing rather loud, or, or, you know, playing music and carrying on. And I can't reply, I cannot put on recording what they said, but it was profane. And they, they were not receptive of Jason's request to turn down. I thought, oh, here we go. So then Saturday, and I'm looking at it, I'm like, I am not going to get my car off here. There were motorhomes and stuff, and they were all bogged down. On top of that, and I'm, I don't want to horrify you, but the camp, the toilets, they couldn't replace. They couldn't get the vehicles on to clean them, so that so that they were just, um, you know, you can imagine, they were not a good state. And the food, it wasn't overpriced or anything like that, but the food was limited. On the Saturday night, I decided I wanted some about midnight. I decided I wanted some yog, um, donuts. Big mistake. Woke up in the, in the you know woke up about three o'clock feeling rather unwell. So it was, and I was like, oh, goodness me, what's going to happen? And then Richard said, well, you can come and stay at my house. And I said, well, the big problem is I can't get the car off. And I looked, and I, me and some, you know what men are like of a certain age? Me and some other blokes, and there were kind of people from Yorkshire and uh, obviously the northeast of England and, and 
the east side of Scotland generally and up that strip there. And we were all, all these blokes were looking and we were scavenging these hard plastic mats. The organisers hadn't done anything really and we were going out and laying them down as a kind of causeway. And you know what blokes are like? We're like, right, we should put them... And I'm not very practical, so I was kind of giving in to their, their, what I thought was their wiser opinions. And, right, okay, we'll put all on one side so the cars have got one wheel on. But what was happening was the cars were rutting, they were digging into the mud on the other side and rutting, and not in that deer kind of way, but they were digging into ruts of mud. Mud's about, mud about two foot deep. And they're getting stuck. Um, so next plan was to put them alternately like a hopscotch mat. And so we did that. And then I looked, there was a way out, and I'd looked at it before, and it was pretty soft. And some car, and I thought, well, I might be able to get down there. And then some car had come along and, and ruined it, really. And I was thinking, oh, you know. So the plan from the organisers was wait till Monday, and they're going to pull everybody out with tractors. Like there must be 800 vehicles or more there. I thought, oh, goodness me. I need to be somewhere by 3 p.m. in Grasmere, as it turned out. And I was in Durham. You may, it's about two hours drive. And um, so I looked at it and I thought, I could get stuck now, get stuck. I'm going to go for it. And I channeled Sheila. Now, Sheila wasn't with me, but Sheila's very, Sheila is fiery. Sheila will take on any challenge, she will fight for what is right, always. Whereas me, I'm like, oh, you know, maybe we, you know, but she is a bold soul. And uh, I thought, right, I'm going to channel Sheila. I'm going to go for it. So I hit the accelerator, put my foot on the gas, and went, and I felt the wheels, and I just kept going. And because it's it's, uh, um, wet, you were, it was skidding and going round. And then I come around the corner. I've got to say there was a corner whereby there was a piece of good grass. And there's this guy who was dressed as, uh, he was a big, big man with Thor hammers around his neck. And he was dressed like some kind of, uh, I can't knock him because he was a Hawkwind fan. He had a Hawkwind t-shirt. But if he had, he'd put up a little fence around his tent and wouldn't let people, you know, cut the corner. So I was having to go on the mud. Anyway, I got on the causeway and there was, um, a bloke, I think he was a Yorkshireman, and uh, God bless uh, Yorkshire, and he pushed me through, and we got out, and then it was amazing, because all my worries had been, up to that point, I was heavily depressed with the thought, so I'm not going to escape, and then suddenly, I get on the causeway, I get into a bit of metalled roadway, and I'm like, I'm free, so I went to stay with Richard, and I, and I slept that night in a bed that was soft, in a house that was quiet and dark and there was no drunken people carrying on. And I thought, I'm getting too old for this festival thing. I like the music, but all the rest of it, which when you're 18 is fun, now is just like, oh, this is no fun at all. So anyway, I got back and I was pleased to say I got back my pups. Um, so we're, we're okay and they were pleased to see me and Sheila was pleased to see me as well. Uh, and so all was well. So that's why I didn't record anything last week. That's a long story. I only say these things because um, it seems that people enjoy me saying them. And not everybody. Some people will write some snarky stuff. But um, the, the bulk of people like me rambling. So I take that as a green light to ramble. Anyway, I hope you're all well. Um, I hope you enjoyed. I hope you understood it. I enjoyed doing it. But um, I'll take care, everybody. I'm going down to see the pups now and Sheila, obviously. I'll probably wrestle with the pups. I may not wrestle with Sheila because um, we're past all that. Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody dies, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked drawer today, didn't you? invite you to consider becoming a patron of the podcast. Patrons perform a really useful task for me in that they give me the wherewithal, the finance through their contributions to enable me to devote time to producing stories for you. So it's actually really helpful if you want to hear more stories. 
And um, there is a big, on Patreon, there is a big uh, backlog of stories, a big library of stories that you can access by becoming a patron. You can download them as well, which is more difficult on podcasts and on YouTube. But if you want to become a patron, you get the double whammy of supporting my work, which enables me to do more work. Imagine that. You pay me to do more, and I do more work for you and produce more stories for you. Which is, and, and you know, I appreciate it. So you get my love and gratitude. And also, you get access to a big backlog of stories and members only stories. Every month, I do at least one members only story. So it's kind of a really good thing to do. And I would just like to invite you to consider becoming a Patreon. It's hard to say links, but this is www.patreon.com forward slash. Barkid, B-A-R-C-U-D. That's me. See you there.